four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living creature say, Come! I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come! I looked. And there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord? holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we enter into this time of of looking at Your Word more intently and asking more deeply, Lord, what it means for us. We pray that You will be with us, that our hearts will be changed because of of Your Word and because of Your Holy Spirit's presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I heard the story of a a social studies teacher who had just finished a a unit on war. Now, uh, the teacher turned to the students and said, how many of you would say you're opposed to war? Now, uh, not surprisingly, all hands shot up. The teacher asked, who will give us a reason for being opposed to war? At that point, a large, bored-looking boy in the back of the room raised his hand. Johnny, the teacher said. Well, I hate war, Johnny said, because wars make history and then some poor innocent kids has to memorize all about it. (laughs) Now my guess is that there is no one who would say that they are for war. No one is pro-war. Yet uh, throughout the centuries, war has been a common theme in history. It might even be thought of as normal. So let me uh, begin by asking some questions. If I were to ask you what normal life looks like on the earth, how would you answer? Let me uh, give you the answer I had when I was a youth. I grew up with parents that were uh, mostly detached, with my father quite abusive. So I, like many of my generation, often sought solace and even... uh, even a certain level of parenting from television. 
the normal American life for me looked a lot like uh, Leave it to Beaver. Father knows best. Bonanza and maybe a little fantasy island. You know, the plane boss. The plane. You all remember the show? Honestly, my view of what should be normal life was quite warped in those days. And I think for millions of children that are raised by television today, their view of normal life is even more warped and twisted than mine was. But I want you to think about what you believe to be the normal operation of this world. What is normal? What should you expect reality to be like? When you think of the world order as going back to normal, how do you view it? Is it the America of the Roaring Twenties, when the economy was booming, when much of the world was relatively peaceful? Do you have an idealist view of what should be normal? Maybe uh, like me, having a leave-it-to-beaver view of normality. How about the opposite? The world during World War I or World War II, most of us tend to look at those periods as being abnormal. How about the time of the Great Depression? Was that the norm? You know, the world of Leave it to Beaver was a, a wonderful one. But was it real? And if it was real for some, is it expected to be normal? Is this what we expect our world to be like, except maybe for a few blips of abnormality? Those are tough questions. See, today in America, we are living with more fear than usual. Terrorist attacks barely make the news any longer, except when it happens within the 50 states. Then there's the new normal of school shootings and other mass shootings. The issue that uh, top the rest in current elections are terrorism, national security, and stopping school shootings. Has America for the last few decades been sheltered from what reality looks like for the rest of the world? Or was that normal? And now we're just experiencing a short negative period. What is God doing? Should we expect God to make our nation and maybe our world more like leave it to beaver? See, I, uh, I like most Christians in history, see that answer given to us here in the book of Revelation, and I think we'll be uh, wanting to look more closely at that. As God pulls back the curtain and gives us explanations of the world around us from His infinite spiritual perspective. And chapter 6 here gives us a very important perspective about our current world. So let me uh, just begin by making a couple more comments about this book. See, we've spent uh, these last seven weeks looking at the letters within this larger letter, and those letters, though amazing, have amazing symbolism, have been both encouraging and also stern warnings to the church. And it's uh, it's supposed to be for all church history. All churches have some, symbol, some semblance of what goes on in each one of those churches. So let me suggest that this rest of the book is also to be encouraging and also warnings to us. The Revelation is written in a form of literature that John's readers were familiar with, but most of us are not. And so uh, if you like to keep notes, you'll find in the middle of your bulletin an outline with a few blanks, and 
Let me give you uh, your first blank. Point one on your outline is this. Revelation is referred to as apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic. We find examples of this kind of writing in many of the, Old, of the Old Testament prophets. And it was common during the time between the end of the Old Testament and the writing of the New Testament. In fact, uh, the literature itself is always filled with symbolism and metaphor. And it appears at times of greatest distress in the history of God's people. See, there were important reasons for this as... Uh, and I'll, I'll be talking about this as we go along. The message of Revelation is especially vital during difficult times. And I think it's very important to be reminded in this day and age of the vital message of the book of Revelation. So let me begin my, uh, before diving in here to chapter 6 by having us look back at the events of chapter 5. And if you have your Bibles or digital or, or paper, I invite you to turn back there to chapter 5. See, the scene in chapter 5 is the throne room of heaven where John has uh, been taken. It is a worship service. And in the midst of this worship service comes a scroll with seven seals. Now, the number seven is very symbolic in and of itself. It represents completeness. Here it's used to indicate that what was inside this scroll is completely hidden by the seven seals because that perfect number of seals on the scroll. And so this is point two on your outline. The Apostle John weeps because the scroll contains God's plan for human history and no one could be found who was worthy to open the scroll. Why would somebody need to open the scroll? So that the plan could be enacted. But then we're told one of the elders tells him not to weep because the conquering lion of Judah is worthy and he has come to open the scroll. But then uh, something unexpected happens. When he turns to look for that conquering lion, instead he sees a lamb with the marks of having been slaughtered. And when one of the most amazing scenes, and this is point three on your outline, the Lion of Judah turns out to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, the great conquering Lion conquers by sacrificial love and gentleness. That is how He conquers. This lamb who is the lion comes from the very center of the throne. So visually, he is meant to be one with God. Okay, now, now that we've set the backdrop, not only for chapter 6, but much of the rest of Revelation, let's, uh, let's go back to chapter 6. The lamb takes the scroll. The lamb who uh, was described as having seven horns or complete power and he has seven eyes, for he sees and is aware of everything completely. And he is the one who opens the scroll. I hope you're beginning to see a lot of symbolism here. What does this remarkable lamb do? He doesn't change the plans and purposes of God. 
But point four is this. The Lamb is the one who enacts and unfolds the sovereign, eternal, unchangeable plans and purposes of God. Even as He receives worship and receives the prayers of all the believers. All believers. Those who are already in heaven, the church triumphant with Him, and all those who worship Him here on earth, which is often referred to as the church militant. Those terms, by the way, come from the book of Revelation. The church with all the angels joined together in recognizing that Jesus is worthy. Now let me explain something else here. We uh, 21st century Americans think linearly. We think of history linearly, beginning, middle, and end. One thing following another. But first century Jewish thought wasn't linear. And so what follows is exactly what we would expect. What we'll see is the seals being broken, then the trumpets, then the bowls, repeating cyclical patterns that emphasize and highlight different aspects within the whole of human history. This was common. It was a well-known pattern of Jewish thought as Jesus, the Lion who is the slaughtered victorious Lamb, unfolds the purposes of God in salvation and in blessing and in judgment. Now the first uh, four seals here, which is in our passage, reveal four horsemen. Most of you have probably heard the reference of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And that's exactly what we're getting here. In fact, in the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah chapter 6, we find similar imagery. So let me read that for you from Zechariah chapter 6. I looked up again, and there before me were four chariots coming out from heaven between two mountains, mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black, the third white, and the fourth dappled. All of them powerful. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these, my Lord? The angel answered me, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. The one with the black horse is going toward the north country. The one with the white horse toward the west. And the one with the dappled horses toward the south. Now in the book of Zechariah, the purpose of these chariots or horses is different. They were out to explore. But here in John, they are used a bit differently. So turn uh, to verses 1 and 2 with me again. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a loud voice like thunder, Come! I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. The first horse, the white horse, in historical context, would point to, and this is point, the next point on your outline, the white horse for first century Christians is a common symbolism for conquest, military conquest. See, the white horse was ridden by a conquering king as he entered the city, not in peace, but in violent victory. So this represents war. 
The second horse is a fiery red horse. We read, when the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Now, uh, before I explain what this horse represents, I want you to notice the passive tense of the verbs here that we see. Read it with me again. To him was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. In other words, the actions of this horseman is under the sanction of God the Father Himself. These are the purposes of the Father unfolded by the Lion who is the Lamb who opens, reads, and enacts the will of the Father. See, while the first horse symbolizes conquest and war between nations, point six on your outline is the red one indicates civil war. Taking away the peace. Allowing the destructive insect instincts of people to come out. Zechariah and Isaiah describe the same thing. And in the time of the first century Roman, civil war and strife were common. Bloodshed and battle for control. Yeats, uh, in a poem written shortly after World War I titled The Second Coming, includes these words as he sees the picture of what is going on. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. See, the story of history is the story of violence, conquest, civil unrest, and war. See, what he is doing here is giving us a picture of what is normal, what God allows to be normal for this world. And just in case you think this was a problem only for the ancients, let's not forget that violent death due to war and civil unrest in the last century, now the 20th century, the so-called century of enlightenment and modern thought, historians tell us that the deaths during the last century have outnumbered all the deaths of all the previous centuries combined. For instance, think of some of these numbers. Under Mao Zedong in China from 1958 to 1961, and then later from 66 to 69, in Tibet in 1949, estimates on the low end are that 49 million and 78 million people were murdered. That's the low end of the estimate. Joseph Stalin in the USSR from 1932 to 39, 15 million people were murdered. Pol Pot from 1975 to 79 in Cambodia, it's estimated that nearly 2 million people were murdered. K. 
Kim II sung in North Korea, 1.6 million people murdered. Adolf Hitler from 1939 to 1945, 12 million people murdered. See, when God comes in judgment, He takes peace from the earth. And in God's mercy, He suppresses the natural inclinations of people toward violent conquest and civil unrest. And when it's time for judgment, God removes the restraint. This isn't judgment of individuals, but societal and national judgment. God in His mercy suppresses and in His judgment withdraws that suppression and allows the inclination of human hearts to run their natural course. Now the third horse. The third rider. When the Lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales. Let me just tell you right at the, uh, at the outset here that the imagery isn't indicating that these scales are scales of justice, but the scales of weighing out money and food. And I heard what said, like a cash register, if you will. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures, the voices of God saying two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, or what one healthy man could eat but not enough to feed his family. In other words, what one man working all day would be getting only enough for himself and not be able to provide for his family. And then one denarius was usually the pay for a day's wages, which in Christ's time would be about 16 times more grain. Or then maybe go for the cheap stuff, he says. Six pounds of barley for a day's wages. Then you'd only be buying enough to feed a very small family on the most basic subsistence level. So the next point on your outline is this. This third black horse is a picture of famine. Hunger, starvation. But do you see even here that we find some restraint? Do not damage the oil on the, the wine. The imagery here is that when the stampeding armies come, they would take and destroy. But even here we see the restraining hand of God. There is hunger and starvation, but even there, here is some mercy and restraint. See, in the first round of judgments, one quarter of the earth is affected. Verse 8, but then it'll get worse in subsequent judgments. See, the picture isn't good. It's horrendously bad. And then comes the fourth horse. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind them. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. See, what's described here with the pale horse is the color of death. And point eight is, on your outline, the fourth pale horse represents death. The rider named Death and Hell was his close companion. And death comes in multiple means here. Do you see it? Sword, 
violent death and war and civil unrest as we've already seen, famine and plague, starvation and disease, and then wild beasts. See, when societies break down in those days, the wild beasts took over. So this includes death from illnesses and natural disasters. Now some of you might remember reading about the Soviet famine of 1932 to 1933. You know, that the severity of that famine was kept from, uh, from us in the Western world until the 90s, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. The main cause of the pol- was the policy of collectivization administered by Joseph Stalin. Under that policy, most of the land would be converted into collective farms, all of them maintained by the peasants. Stalin went about implementing this by destroying the peasants' existing farms, their crops and their livestock, and forcibly taking their land. Reports of peasants hiding crops for individual consumption led to wide-scale search parties, and any hidden crops that were found were destroyed. In most of those cases, the crops that were destroyed were the seeds for, for the next season. In fact, the destruction of these seeds and that forced collectivization of land caused mass starvation, killing an estimate on the low end again of around 10 million. Then there's the Chinese famine of 1907. It was actually quite a short-lived event, and it took the lives of nearly 25 million people. A series of poor harvests a massive storm which flooded 40,000 square miles of of lush agricultural territory. Food riots took place, and they were often quelled through the use of deadly force. It is estimated that on a good day, on a good day, only 5,000 Chinese were dying because of starvation. Unfortunately for that nation, this wouldn't be their last great famine. In 1958 to 1962, just like the Soviet famine in this one, it was caused by communist leaders attempting to force change on their unwilling population. As part of what they referred to as the Great Leap Forward, the owning of private land was outlawed in China in 1958. Communal farming was implemented in an attempt to increase crop production. Millions of agricultural workers were forcibly removed from their fields and sent to factories to create metal. Chinese officials mandated new methods of planting. Seeds were to be planted three to five feet under the soil and extremely close together to maximize growth and efficiency. In practice, what little seeds that sprouted were severely stunted because of overcrowding. And these failed policies teemed with a flood in 1959 and a drought in 1960 affected the entire Chinese nation. And by the time the Great Leap Forward had ended in 1962, 43 million Chinese had died from famine. See, all this leads me to one of the major points of this text. And that is that the four horsemen are riding along the earth today. 
just as they have been since the time of John. As God, through the Apostle John, pulls the curtain back on spiritual reality, we see that this is the real normal of our world today, as it has been since the time of Christ. See, in our arrogance, we believe that we can use modern philosophies, new technologies, science to make progress beyond these realities that are allowed by God. We believe we'll conquer human violence, we'll override the human desire for power over others, that we'll conquer all disease by our own modern abilities. And while we do seem to have some victories in the short run, something else always seems to arise that makes us go back to that drawing board. Our modern philosophies sometimes are even the ones that create the problem. Remember what Jesus said, there will be wars and rumors of wars. See, Christ tells us that this is what is normal. This is what we should expect. Now, this doesn't mean that we as Christians shouldn't be at the forefront of peacemaking, of discovering new medicines and technology and technologies that improve human life. We absolutely should be. But it does mean that human evil will find ways around us to promulgate more death, more violence. See, this is the reality of the world. These are the realities that God allows to accompany the spreading of the Word and building His church. And that's what we see here in the fifth seal, isn't it? See, now we're moved to the, back up to the throne room of heaven. Look at, with me, look at it with me in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the Word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, how holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. This is very clearly a picture of, the, of martyred Christians who had died for their Christian witness and their faith. In fact, the language in the Greek here is that they were truly faithful to Christ. They had maintained their testimony. So let me ask you another question. Did you know that more missionaries have gone out in the world over the last century than in the previous 1,800 years combined? And did you also know that more Christians had been murdered, martyred for their faith in the last century than in the last 1,800 years combined? See, the current numbers that are, are that over 105,000 Christians are martyred for their faith each and every year. And that's again on the low end of the estimate. Currently over 100 million Christians are being persecuted worldwide. That's why I pray every week for them. According to the Pew Forum, 70% of the world's population lives in a religiously intolerant environment. North Korea continues to be the worst country in the world for persecution. Nigeria in 2010, Christians suffered terror from Muslim extremists. Whole villages were massacred. 
as well as in Iran. Muslims who change their faith are commonly put to death in Indonesia. Between the years 2000 and 2002, Muslims slaughtered 10,000 Christians there. In Syria, nearly all the 80,000 Christians have been cleansed from their homes. See, these are the martyrs. They are witnesses to the grace of God and how persecution must run its course. Even as they cry out to God, How long, O Lord? The answer is that there is a full number of their brothers and sisters yet to come. In other words, persecution must run its course. Until then, they are to enjoy their rightful place in heaven, clothed in Christ's white robes of purity. But justice will come at the appointed time. So let me uh, make some conclusions and maybe prognosticate for a moment. Okay? That's, uh, that's what people like from the book of Revelation, prognostication about the future. Let me give you some. You might ask me, will there be more wars? The resounding answer is yes. Will there be more famine? Again, yes. Will there be more revival? Yes. Will there be more evangelism? Yes. See, Jesus tells us the wheats and the tares will grow together. Until he returns, they will grow together. Both happen at the same time. Let me uh, make another important point here. Now, I've often heard it said that the message of Revelation is basically that we believers win in the end. And there is some truth to that. But there's also an assumption in that statement that there is this constant out-of-control battle. And that misses a very key point in the book of Revelation. You see, all these events aren't outside the control of God. God is sovereign. God doesn't stand back and say, whoops! I accidentally let that war happen. See, this is my Father's world. No matter how much things seem to fall apart, God is sovereign. Let me make another important observation from this text that I think is important for us to, uh, to understand as we daily seek the Lord for His revitalization here in our midst at Parkway. See, in the Old Testament... And the sacrificial system there, the blood of the sacrifice was poured out on the base of the altar. So too we see the blood of these martyrs has been poured out as a pleasing offering to Jesus their Lord who poured out His life that they might have everlasting life. Paul used the same language in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. You see, as followers of the slaughtered Lamb who was slain for us, we too are called to live sacrificial lives poured out for the sake of the Gospel. That's what spiritual victory looks like. We aren't called out so that we can live lives of earthly comfort and earthly fulfillment. We aren't here so that we can live with constant health and wealth. We aren't called out to live our best life now. 
We're called out to follow a slaughtered, victorious Lamb of God who poured out His life for us. How can we but follow in the same way? That's His calling upon each and every one of us. Are you living a poured out life? Are you living a life of pleasure seeking? See, my friends, we live in a world that stands in judgment. There's only one hope. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the one and only hope in a world of violence, sickness, famine, and death has been and remains the slaughtered lamb who has poured out his life on your behalf and on mine. Maybe you haven't trusted him today. Or maybe you've lived your Christian life as a spectator, expecting God to provide comfort and wealth, not realizing that you've been called to follow a crucified Savior. And so I invite you to take a moment after the service, talk to me, talk to one of our prayer servants afterwards. We would love to share the life-giving message of the Gospel with you this morning. That you might indeed learn to live a poured out life for the One who poured His life out for you. Let's pray together. Gracious and merciful God, You are so loving and kind beyond all that we can ask or imagine. We so often live our lives indifferent, indifferent to what is going on in the world. We are inheritors of many, many, many faithful martyrs and witnesses to the Gospel today. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for of living in lives of apathy and not understanding our calling to live poured out lives for the sake of the Gospel. Thank You, Lord, for Your hand of grace and mercy upon us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you now to stand for our final hymn.